the last thing we saw in Oisei, which is uh, really such a, an incredibly powerful idea, <coughs> when the Nichnasim, when the Yuvanim, not one cough in Ukraine. I just want you guys to know it was so it was heated, so hot that I think it dried up everything. But one that you know, not sleeping, Meitzi Shabbos brought it back. But not one cough the whole time. How's the food? Amazing, and the Gashmias is unbelievable. They take care of the Gashmias so that you don't just you just don't worry about it. I mean, wake up Shabbos, one of these two tables with with, with cake and 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 orange juice and apple juice and there's uh, coffee and. Uh, you have to worry about the Gashmias at all, and you're warm in Hadlich. But the Alter Rebbe is warm, so you can stay there as long as you want. The Mittler Rebbe, I mean, after half an hour, I, I gave out. It was just, you know, you're standing in slippers. It's minus five. The floor is, a, is a, a, like standing on ice. And, you know, I had the warm coat on, so I, you know, I was holding the minor Lushen with one hand. I'd say one page, and then I'd switch hands. Every, every page I was switching hands. It was, it was freezing in there. But... Um, the middle of is warm. <coughs> no, the 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 Gashmi is there. It's unbelievable. It, it, it's Lubavitcher Shneir Daich, and he he you know called He built a, this absolutely gorgeous palatial place, so people can come and be comfortable and, and do what they have to do in Ruchnius without having to worry about being uncomfortable in Gashmis. And people today don't like being uncomfortable in Gashmis, and if they are, they have a hard time focusing on anything else. Are we low and 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 pampered? Yes. Okay. Say this. So he built a place for in the old days. Yeah, yeah. You know, Achasid went to the Rebbe. I mean, what did he, what was it like at home? What was it like on the road? It was all the same. He was cold and was muddy and was dirty and well, guys upset. So no one cared. That's not how we live. So he made a place that it's it just it's gorgeous. Meaning, I wouldn't go to the Alter Rebbe's stum on a holiday. Right? Because I have a rabbit to go to. I don't, you know, that's not where I would go. Right? I go to the rabbit. But, but it's. It, it, I mean, all that aside, it's a place where you could take your wife for a, for a nice Shabbos away. I mean, it's that nice. Right? Okay. So, the place is gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Right? It's not a fancy hotel room. It isn't. It's just you know, beds and but but clean, nice, warm. Such a good job. He, he kept it. Within the bounds of normalcy, but it's comfortable, and it's, uh, it's unbelievable. So people can just go hang out with the Alter Rebbe and that. And the fact that there's heat in the sea it makes a huge difference. The middle Rebbe is just so cold. It's like being by, like being by the Rebbe Yudshvat. Right? Just go to the Rebbe Yudshvat. Go to the the Friedrich Rebbe Yudshvat. You're standing on ice. Your feet are freezing. <laughs> How long can you stand there? The Rebbe used to stand five six hours. No one could understand how. So we take all the panim and you try to be by the be by the Friedrich Rebbe for five or six hours in Shvat in New York, no roof. In those days, I mean, they built finally they built a place for the Rebbe to, to be that was covered and heated. But 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 the early years, the Rebbe would just stand there for hours in the snow. Tammuz, the Rebbe would stand by the Friedrich Rebbe Yudbeis Tammuz in New York heat for six seven hours reading people's panim. Everybody else would go for 10 minutes and they'd want to faint. Mm-hmm. But, uh, a, very, a very special place. It's unbelievable. And also Ukraine, Bechlal, there's a big map of the Ukraine up on the wall in the hotel and you see what was there. Just a British 
Chernobyl, and I mean, you know, name name a Rebbe. So it's all there, Kimat, all there. You know, obviously, there's what was going on in Poland, and uh, and what was going on in Russia, right? But Russia, so in Russia, was Lubavitch and Carlin, but but uh, you know, most of the action was in the Ukraine. Balshemta was in the Ukraine. Medjibos is in the Ukraine. Bidichu is in the Ukraine. Right? It's all there. It's amazing. And you're right, when you get to the airport and you see the Goyim in their uniforms and, the, and the, the smile they have on their face, that warm, welcoming Ukrainian smile, you realize what it must have been like living with these people. Just push it, the most grub-looking people I ever saw in my life. Push it grub. <laughs> it's lowest of the low. There were some nice, very nice people around, but I mean, just you can just imagine what it must have been like living with these people. When they could take care of you if they wanted to, which is what they wanted to a lot. Some Ukrainians. I mean, during the war, the Ukrainians were worse than the Germans. <clears throat> okay, let's go back to our mimer. But there's a, there's so much Jewish kedusha in the Ukraine that it's beyond belief. <coughs> So the Yuvanim wanted to be Matama, the Shemin Shebehechel. What's the Shemin Shebehechel? Chokma Shebebina. Shemin is Chokma, Hechel is Bina. What's Shemin Shebehechel? Not what you know, how you think. If you think a certain way, it doesn't matter what you learn, you'll turn it into silliness and it won't affect you. A person can sit and learn to see this all day if it's about becoming smarter and, and, and understanding uh, interesting and sophisticated ideas. So, okay, fine. Is it going to affect the person? Not necessarily. Right? People learn chassidus in in uh, university uh, Kabbalah 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 study programs and doesn't affect it. Right? Right. That's the Greek. So we have to make sure we don't think like a Greek, think like a Yid. I heard a beautiful word from Reuven Duna in one of the Fabrengans on Shabbos that that uh, we always say and rightfully so. But Reuven took it a step further. We have to you, know, you get chassidus in your head; it has to bang around your head. Which is true. <coughs> you have to get the mimer in your head. But even more, you have to get your head in the mimer. Put your, put your head in the mimer. It's one thing to get the mimer in your head. Okay, but that can theoretically be something relatively useless. Not useless, but I mean, it might be that it doesn't affect the person because they make sure that it doesn't. Put your head in the mimer so then it affects you. Behine. Okay, so we got to Vav. So how do you defeat the Greek? In order to defeat the Greek, it's not enough. An Aveda that is rational, reasonable. You don't de- debate the Greek because then you're on the Greek stage. And, and, and even if your idea is a more, more convincing idea, it doesn't matter. You're trying to relate to things within the context of the way the Greek relates to ideas. <clears throat> right here in Eretz Yisrael, every year, to celebrate Hanukkah, so the Greek basketball team comes and plays the the, the best Israeli ta- ba- basketball team. And what's the best Israeli basketball team's name? Maccabi Tel Aviv. Maccabi, the Maccabim. The Maccabim are rolling over in their graves. That there's a bunch of people representing them in play, wearing underwear, shooting a ball through a little basket. It's exactly what they were all about fighting. That's Greek culture. 
right? So the Israeli team plays the Greek team uh, a game of basketball. Well, they won because we're on the court. Now, it happens to be that none of the players are Israeli. I think they're all, you know, imported Americans, but, but what, you know, we're, we're on the court. So if we're on the court, we lost. Right? What are we doing playing? It's Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the battle again. It's so interesting because we're going to see it in the Mimer. We'll be able to discuss it. And we haven't talked about it yet, but now once we get into the what Hanukkah is really all about, it's just so fascinating. Hanukkah is the anti-culture holiday. And yet it's the most cultural of all Jewish holidays. Everybody lights a Hanukkah. All sorts of people have a Hanukkah on their kitchen table with Wonder Bread next to it. Right? Right? Now, some of those people have some sort of Seder and Pesach. Some of those people, well, actually, most of those people who have a Hanukkah, they'll also be in Shul and Roshani and Kippur. The Hanukkah? Everybody's big on Hanukkah. People love Hanukkah. Not just because it's like that other one. It's like Hanukkah. It's a Jewish holiday. Okay. Seder. So interesting because it's become very, very cultural. And yet the whole Indian of Hanukkah is anti-culture. The Yiddishkeit isn't culture. Yiddishkeit is elokus. It's exactly what the Greeks wanted to be culture. That's exactly what they were about. We don't mind if you keep your culture. Just keep gone out of it. It has nothing to do with godliness. It has nothing to do with, 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 with anything transcendent. Hanukkah is all about transcendence. That's why there's no physical mitzvah. The mitzvah is a mitzvah of light. Transcendent reality. And yet it's so interesting, it's become the ultimate cultural holiday amongst the Jewish people. We'll be able to understand why once we understand the Chassidus of Hanukkah. It's fascinating. How do you win? It's not enough to win al pitam v'das. You don't beat the Greek by coming up with a better idea. Vafilu loya mitam v'das and even a level of Aveda that's beyond intellect, hakshurim tam v'das. That is connected to Tam Vadas. That means a certain level, that I can explain rationally why such a level is reasonable. No. The whole idea of, the, of going to fight the Greeks was absolutely absurd, Alpi Tam Vadas. No one in their right mind, Alpi Tam Vadas, would have started that war. Absolutely absurd. And that's exactly why they won. There's no, there's no such thing as, as, as not keeping Torah and mitzvahs. It doesn't matter what the odds are. It doesn't matter what the situation is. nothing to do with a rational approach to reality. That doesn't mean there isn't a rational approach to reality the person has to deal with within the context of their everyday life. But their relationship with the Kaddish Baruch is completely super rational. has to be completely super rational. The marshal that we brought and we is brought in this concept of their relationship with parents. It's not rational. You don't like your parents because you've come to the rational decision that it would be nice to have a relationship with them? That's absurd. There's an essential connection that completely transcends every other aspect of, of revealed reality. They're your parents. That's the way it goes. For better or for worse, there might be things that you find difficult to get along with. Okay, but what's that? What difference does it make? You know, there's a connection that is absolutely super rational. Yes, it has to resonate in your reason, meaning the older you get, the more reasonable you get in that relationship. 15-year-olds are pretty stupid in that relationship. Hopefully by the time they're 20, they're a little, right? We know what Mark Twain said. You guys have heard that. What's the Aveda? Right? What we talked about earlier, and we also saw it in Pada Bisholem. The level of Aveda that comes from Amakif, 
meaning a super rational aspect of our neshama, not the aspect of the neshama that's clothed in our and responsible for our conscious experience here in Eilam it's a makif, it's super rational, but it's a level of super rational, makif techayev, which is makif akarev, right? Chayesh u'benefesh. So chayesh u'benefesh, if, <coughs> if there will be a revelation of chayesh u'benefesh in a person's neshama, in a person's conscious uh, experience, so that'll still be a level of beyond tamvadas that I can explain in tamvadas. What's, what's the most of that? Ratzon. Right? Ratzon is super rational, right? It's not something you have immediate conscious control over. You can't control consciously what you want. It's not coming from conscious you. You can control what you're thinking. You can control what you're saying. You can control what you're doing. You can't control what you want. Not immediate control. Why? It's not conscious you. It's coming from a different place. Right? And it'll become sub- subconscious you or superconscious you, depending on what the source of that Ratzon is, whether it's your Nefesh Elokis, superconscious, or your Nefesh Abami, subconscious. Okay, fine. So we know that Ratzon is not conscious. It's the but but what is Ratzon? It's that aspect of the of, of the subconscious reality that is constantly being revealed in conscious you. Because you, what happens? You start to think about that desire and act upon that desire. Do I want to act upon that desire? Right? Do I want to? Do I want to? Do I want to? do whatever this desire is or say whatever this desire wants me to say or think about whatever this desire wants me to Okay, so it's a level of superconscious or subconscious, but it's constantly flipping into conscious you and revealing itself in conscious you and then you make this decision. Do I want to connect to that or I don't want to connect to that? Okay, if it's something negative, hopefully we go, fair, go away, I'm not interested. If it's something positive, oh, Baruch Hashem, let's go. Right. Depending on where it's coming from. But I don't have control over its existence because I don't have control over that part of me that's not conscious. Immediate control. Long-term, yes, we've talked about it. I have long-term control. The cigarette smoker can stop wanting cigarettes after a time. But you can't tell him the day he decided to quit to not want a cigarette. That's absurd. Don't smoke one? Of course he can not smoke one. That's completely and totally within the powers that he has because that's conscious him. Don't want one. How can he not want one? <laughs> he has no control over that. That's not conscious him. Okay. It comes into conscious him and he becomes aware of that desire in his head. He starts to think about it. So at that point, he has a decision. Either I'm going to bring this desire to fruition and light the cigarette or I won't. The horse dying was good for the cigarette smokers. They got to get out of the, get off the horse and go smoke their cigarettes outside. But uh, the rest of us weren't happy about our horse dying. That's, that's the way we are. So there's a level of, of neshama that's super conscious. And we learn, again, we learned about it in Padre B'Sholom, Makif Techaya. But that's a level that is called Makif HaKarev. The Makif that's very close to conscious you. And so it's constantly being revealed in conscious you on certain levels. Okay? So that level is a level that still has a connection to rationale, Tamvadas. And I can expect, you, what, when we talk about the difference between a rutzen and a taiva, what's the difference between a rutzen and a taiva in Chassidus? We've talked about it. A rutzen can be explained rationally? Ideal. Taiva can't. A taiva is a desire that, has, that we can't explain rationally. <clears throat> right? That's why we use that Lushen when we talk about a Kodesh Baruch, having a taiva for a dirbetach toinim. We have taiva. The Hebrew says taivas. 
Well, in other words, it's something that can't be explained, even by his rationale, so to speak. Just had a tiver for this, okay. A ratzon is, is a, le- and, that, and most of what we experience is what you and I would call ratzon. <coughs> if you say, I want this, some, it's a reasonable thing for someone to ask you the question after you express your desire for something, what's a reasonable question to ask? Why? And he should probably be able to explain that to you. <laughs> okay, that's the way ratzon works. Most ruts, even though it's beyond intellect, it's coming from a place beyond conscious you, but it's explainable in conscious you, right? Gee, I really want a sweater. Why? It's cold, right? I have a tiger for a sweater. Well, that's really dumb. It's 85 degrees out. Why do you want a sweater? I don't know. I just had a tiger to wear my sweater. Okay, that you and I would call a tiger, so to speak. Halavai, that should be our worst tiger ever. L'chaim, l'chaim. Exactly was everybody's Yitzhar. Oh, I think I'll, you know, go take a holiday to Aruba, right? It's definitely what was out there. <coughs> Maybe I'll just, you know, go to the south of France for two weeks, right? <coughs> so a taiva is something we can't explain. A rutzen is a level beyond tamvadas that illuminates in Tamvadas and can be explained by Tamvadas. So there's a level of Maseris Nefesh that comes from there. Why it's reasonable to be Maseris Nefesh. Okay. There's even a level of Maseris Nefesh and, and, uh, right, that it's so reasonable that it's a halacha. There are times you're chayiv, al pi halacha, to be Maseris Nefesh. Right? So obviously that's resonating Tamvadas. I can explain to you exactly why. I can show you the Simon and Shulchan Aruch that says why you're supposed to be Maseris Nefesh in this particular situation. Right? Okay. That doesn't mean it's not being serious nefesh. It's amazing. But it's still coming from a place of, of Tam Vadas. <coughs> it might be coming from a higher place, but it, re- that it can come from a place where it resonates in Tam Vadas. That Messias Nefesh can also come from Yechidosh of Nefesh. But it can also come from a place where I'm Chayav al Piz Shokhanak, to be Mesh Nefesh. I'll be Mesh Nefesh. Okay. Say Were the Chashmonaim Chayav to be Mesh Nefesh? No. As a matter of fact, if they had gone to ask a Rav, should we fight this war? What would the Rav probably say? No. Don't. It's dangerous. You don't have to put your life in danger in this situation. That's what they would be told. Right? Just like whom in the Chumash? Famous story. I'm not going to start ranting and raving about Rashi. Just a general story in Chumash. There's a Parsha named after him because he did this. Pinchas, right? Pinchas. Halacha vein marin came. If Pinchas had gone to ask a Rav, should he go kill Zimri, he would have been told no. <laughs> Didn't ask. <laughs> he went anyway. There's a Parsha named after him. Because what did they do? Well, they did what we learned about, what we learned about on, on whenever it was. Three months ago, Thursday. Hainu, <clears throat> what does that mean? The, the oils in the heichel. Hainu, gama in yonim de kedusha, matters of holiness. Shilamaylimitam vadas. Ela akshurim imtam vadas. 
that they're connected to Tambadas. The Greek can defile that level of reality, right? The Greek defiled Shemen Shebeichel. What's Shemen? Shemen is beyond conscious you, but it's the source of conscious you. That's Chokhmah, right? Chokhmah is a power of your soul that is the source of conscious you, but it's beyond conscious you. That's why Chokhmah is Bittel. Chokhmah is a level beyond conscious you, but it's the source of conscious you. The reason you can be conscious of yourself to the extent that you are, you can experience what you and I call human consciousness, is because you have this power called Chokhmah. Right? But Chokhmah itself is not where you experience that consciousness. Where is it that you experience that consciousness and that level of your intellect called Bina? That's why Bina is a conjugated verb. We talked about it last week. Ani mevin. There's an Ani in the level of Bina. I understand. Chokhmah is the ability to understand, but it hasn't come into a state of revelation yet. So in terms of human consciousness, Chokhmah is the source of human consciousness. But that in Chokhmah itself, I am not yet conscious of myself. That's why, again, Chokhmah is Bittl. There's no me yet. It's the source of what's going to be me in the next step in the process. But it's not me yet. But it's that part of me that, that I mean, it is me. It's part of but it's not conscious me. It's the part of me that will be the source of that me that experiences me. I'm conscious of my existence. I'm conscious of myself. I'm conscious of the existence of my fingers and my toes. Okay? And other things, other aspects of reality. I'm hungry. Where does that happen? Conscious me becomes aware of the fact that I'm hungry, whatever that means. There will be times when when you're hungry, but you're not conscious of it. Why? Because you're busy being conscious of something else. You're much more focused on something else and you're not thinking about the fact that you're hungry. doesn't mean you're not hungry. You're hungry. Just not thinking about it. Okay, so it's not resonating in your consciousness and so so you're not going to worry about it right now. What might happen at some point, you'll stop concentrating on whatever you're concentrating about and you'll go, ooh, you know, I'm hungry. You want to eat something. Okay. Consciousness works. So what's the source of all that? This place called Chokhmah. Where does it happen? Bina. Ani mevin. There's no ani in Chokhmah. Can't conjugate the verb. You can. We talked about it last week. You can conjugate anything in Hebrew. But, uh, it, it, but there's, no, there's no kal form of Chokhmah in a verb. Ani something in Chokhmah. Ani mevin, kal. I understand. Yes, that's something I can do. Why? Because I have this thing called Chokhmah. Naked intellect the ability to understand, the potential, the potentiality of what is, the ability to ask mazeh. Okay. But that comes into fruition in a place called bina. So to rel- that in, that's how it works in intellect, that's also how it works in consciousness, how I'm aware of myself. So what were the Greeks able to do? Bimatama, the shemen shebeich, the point even beyond conscious reality, incredibly powerful. So they could get us to think a certain way, they could touch that point where our conscious thought would be in line with their desires. Shem and like we saw on Thursday. Mikevin Shatimu Gamis Kolishman Shabaikal, Hainu Gamin Yonim the Kedusha Shalamaila Mitamvadas, Elak Shurimim Tamvadas. The Greek got there too. Vinitsochan and Milchama, how do you defeat the Greek? You have to go against the Greek with something beyond intellect. That doesn't mean that you don't understand anything. That means that you 
fight the Greek by realizing that your connection to Elokus transcends intellect. It's an essential connection. The Indian of Messias Nefesh, and we learned this in Pad so this is review. The Indian of Messias Nefesh, he amida betekif, is standing strong, neged kolameni ma'akvim, against all opposition. Takef atzmi, an essential kifus, power, that's completely and totally beyond seichel. Ukemei, like a Messias Nefesh al Kiddush Hashem, the Messias Nefesh, the self-sacrifice on Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name, meaning a person willing to give up their life to sanctify God's name. Sheini mitzad Ezer Svar Sichlis, it's not coming from Ezer, from any uh, uh, intellectual idea, because Adarabba, intellectually, what can I always, what, what, what conclusion can I always come to intellectually that's completely and totally reasonable? Why in the world should I give up my life <coughs> in order not to be Mechal Shabbos? I'll be Mechal Shabbos now when, when I'm being threatened and then I can keep another 30 years of Shabbos. Perfectly reasonable. Perfectly reasonable argument. Right? Okay. I'll be Tam Vidas. Even I'll pee Lamaylamitam Vidas. I want to keep God Shabbos. <laughs> and I want to keep God Shabbos for 30 years. I'm going to have to give up one in order to keep the next 30 years. Perfectly reasonable. But ultimately, at that point, and this is, this is even La Halacha, if it's Befarhesi, if it's in public, at that point, what, what, is, what, is, what is Jewish history full of? Yidn, say, Azayvin it No, there's no such thing. Right? Was the Marshal? Right? It's like for a Jew to be told, break Shabbos and I'll let you keep Shabbos for the next 30 years is like saying, let me cut off your head and I'll let you live for the next 30 years. We can't cut off my head and live. So it's this thing. Right? Okay. So being Mechal Shabbos in, in public when a Jew, when a, a non-Jew has his gun to your head is impossible. So there's no such, it just doesn't exist. There's no, there's no such reality. That's Messias Nefesh, Mechidish of Nefesh. Logically, we find all sorts of reasons why that's a reasonable thing to do. <coughs> that's Hanukkah. Hanukkah, the Chashmonaim. The, the, the What's your the Rebbe? <laughs> the Rebbe once said, Chashmonaim is Isis Mashiach now. Right? <laughs> Just so, so, you know, it's out of character for the Rebbe to say something like that, but he smiled and said, it's Mashiach now. He said, more than once. It's impossible that it should be in another way. That, in the, the original Yiddish of that is a zoiv and nit andrish. This is the way it is, and it's impossible any other way. Nit andrish. There's no other. There is no other reality. You can't live if your head's been cut off. So, that... That choice isn't a choice. Right? Now, that's obviously in, in Tam Vadas, that's not a choice. Okay, well, right. I mean, that, the, the, the person's relationship to their connection to Kaddish Baruch has to be that clear. That's Chanukah. And this level of clarity, this level of connection, comes from the connection of the essence of the soul. Yechidah Benefish, which is, again, what we talked about in Padre Vishol. De'inyan his kashrus atzmis. This 
aspect of essential connection, who there isn't any other reality. If someone is essentially connected to something, so essence can't be changed. Essence is what it is. The Moshe we've used in Gashmius is a person can dye their hair blonde for 30 years. Their DNA is still black hair. It is what it is. There's nothing you can do about it. Okay, so now what if that resonates in consciousness? Then the person's not going to dye their hair. They're, 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 no, this is who I am. Why should my revealed reality be out of sync with my essential reality? Right? So, I mean, most of us find dying hair rather silly. Okay, fine. Baruch Hashem. Right. Okay. <coughs> What's the essence of a yid? Elokus. Achelik elokami mal mamish. Hanukkah is the most powerful expression of that. In that the Mechashmanaim were, were, were unable to accept the fact that there would be any force in the world that would keep Yidin away from the, a relationship with the Kaddish Baruch in any way, shape, or form. And were willing to be Meisun Nefesh for that and went to war in a way that was absolutely absurd, rationally, and they won. Because there's a God. You know? Yeah, I'm not comparing the two, but I mean, I mean, well, there's, you know, on a certain level, there's a comparison, obviously, between what you know, what happens in this country, right? Different, right? I mean, really, Hanukkah. This is the non-PC part of Hanukkah that no one ever talks about. Who were the Hashemonaim? Bunch of religious zealots. Who did they fight? So we like to say the Greeks. That's not really who they fought. Who did they really fight? Just history. The Jewish authorities who had adopted Greek culture and were running the show here in Eretz Israel as proxies of the Greeks. And they rebelled. Meaning, really Hanukkah is a bunch of zealots from the neighborhood we live in deciding to overcome the godless Zionist hordes who have adopted Greek culture. That's basically the story of Hanukkah, which no one likes to say, because it's not so PC today. But that's really the story of Hanukkah, because it, 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 yes, the Greeks came to help the people. What were they called? The Jewish authorities who were running Eretz Israel under the Greeks? They were called the Mityavnim, the people who had accepted Greek culture. And so they were in charge, with the Greeks behind them. The Greek army was here, but it was basically... Being run by the the being run by the Mitzvahim, the people who had adopted Greek culture, and that was the, it was a civil war. Now the Greeks came to help the Mitzvahim, but still lost. Which is what makes the whole thing even more interesting, because Hanukkah is the most cultural of all holidays. So even the modern-day Jew would be called something akin to a mityaven. Not that chas they're fighting. I mean, sometimes they do, but sometimes, you know, most of the time they don't, right? They're not fighting Yiddishkeit or anything, but they just have adopted completely Western culture and see that as the, as the, as the guiding light in what's right and wrong, if there is such a thing. So, so, the, so many of those people, so to speak, like Hanukkah why do we like Hanukkah? It's completely contrary to their belief system. But they all like Hanukkah. 
I mean, only they, you know, it's, it's us, it's Eden. But that Jew lights Hanukkah mm-hmm. There will be a menorah in front of the Knesset. There's one all the time. I would assume, I don't know, I, I, I've been there for a long time, but I mean, I drive by now and then, I mean, you know, I think there's, I wouldn't be surprised if on the fence outside the Knesset there isn't, you know, menorahs is part of the decoration of the, I mean, it's a very powerful symbol that's used in, right? Right? And the Zionist movement represents an anti-religious, anti-Torah reality. Does that mean everything about it is bad? That's not what I'm saying. But the Zionist movement as a movement is about replacing Yiddishkeit with something else. That's what it was about. That's why most of the religious Jewish community was not particularly enamored of it. What was going on in Europe was the Zionists were coming from here and trying to get kids to leave yeshiva and go to go come to Eretz Yisrael and join the New Age Judaism. That's what was going on. Okay, <coughs> have good things come as a result of that movement? All sorts of amazing things, miracles have happened. Amazing. But um, you know, if you have, if you know, if you happen to have this, you know, desire that the Lubavitcher Rebbe be a Zionist, well, forget it. He's not. Right? He's not a Zionist. Does he hate any? He doesn't hate any. Is that the way the Rebbe works? Right? right? The Rebbe used to have his, used to speak with as many ministers in the Zionist governments as possible. And and when asked why, the Rebbe said these are people who have tremendous ability to help millions of Jews. And so if you can influence these people to help Jews, then of course, why in the world wouldn't you talk to them and try to get them to institute legislation that'll help Jews? Okay. Perfectly reasonable. <coughs> but when, when Zalman Shazar, who was very close to the Rebbe, and he was the president of the country, when the Zalman Shazar asked the Rebbe why the Rebbe never refers to him as the president, the Rebbe would never write to him as the Nasi of the of East, the Rebbe said, the president of what? <laughs> So Shazar accepted that, right? Shazar, I mean, he was an interesting, his, well, his last name was, his last name was, well, his last name was Shazar, but his last name really was Rubinoff, and Shazar stood for Schneer Zalman Rubinoff, which was his, his grandfather, I think, and then the name became Shazar. He was the president of the country. Huge uproar in Israel in the, in the, when he was president in the 60s because he went to New York and uh, he asked the Rebbe to come see him in his hotel room. The Rebbe said, I, I'm not, I don't leave Kranitz, I'm not coming to see you. If you want to see me, you have to come to me. So he went, and they were furious in the country. You know, front page articles. How can it be that the president of the country goes to see a religious leader in the religious leader's home, you know, place? It should be the other way around. The rabbi should go visit the president. The president's a president. He's only a rabbi. So when they asked Shazar about it, he said, you're right. A rabbi should go see a president, but a chassid goes to see his Rebbe. Now, he wasn't from, <laughs> you know, but he, he was a husband of the Rebbe. I mean, he did, he's a very fascinating guy. He, did, he was the minister of education. Rabbi Parrish tells this story. He was the minister of education at the beginning, in the very beginning of Ben-Gurion's government, right? Like, you know, late 40s, early 50s, like right at the beginning. So, Menachem Parrish was the head of Agudas Yisrael. He tells the story. You can see there's a video of him telling the story. Um, Menachem Parish was the head of a Gudish Yisrael. And he went to New York. 
and he went to see this. The, well, this is the this is the this is 1949 because he went to see the Friedrich not not our he went to see the Friedrich and the Friedrich Rebbe told him that there has to be an independent from education system in this new state. Can't only be state education. The from have to have an independent education system, so they don't have to learn what the state wants them to learn. And that's what today is called chinuch atzma'i. Still, meaning there's different tracks in education here, and, and most chadarim and yeshivas are, um, but it's, yeshivas are independent. But the, the chadarim, grade, you know, aleph through ches, one through eight. So those are the, the, there's chinuch atzma'i, which means they have their own umbrella organization and get their own government funding. So the, the Friedrich Rebbe said that's very, very important because they were setting up a state and they are, you know, obviously most, it was most reasonable to assume that all of the schools would be under one educational system. So the Friedrich Rebbe wanted this to happen. So Menachem Poris tells the story. He came back to Eretz Yisrael. Now this, there was no Knesset in Yerushalayim. The Knesset was in Tel Aviv in these days. He comes back to Eretz Yisrael. He's standing in the hallway of the Knesset and he's talking to David Ben-Gurion and Zalman Shazar, who's the Minister of Education, and him. Now, what language are they speaking, these three? Think about it for a minute. What language are they speaking with each other? Yiddish. Yiddish. They barely knew Hebrew, these guys, right? I mean, Ben-Gurion's Hebrew was terrible. Right? They're speaking, I mean, they, you know, he, he spoke, but he spoke like a greener, right? I mean, it, it wasn't his mother tongue, obviously. Not that <coughs> Netanyahu speaks her, you know, beautiful Hebrew, right? Speak a beautiful Hebrew, Ben Gurion. Listen to his speeches. <laughs> the first one that spoke a beautiful Hebrew was Ben was was Begin, which was funny because he. But right, we also grew up speaking. They speaking Yiddish to each other in the hallway of the Knesset. David Ben Gurion, Zalman Shazar, and Menachem Parish. And Menachem Parish, he tells the story. You can get a video of it. It's fascinating. Parish says it's on one of those you know my encounter things, but it's with the Friedegger Rebbe. He says. I was just by the, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe in New York. He says, oh, and, and so Ben-Gurion says, you were by the Rebbe Mamish? <laughs> Meaning not like you were, you know, in the neighborhood. You, you like saw the Rebbe? He said, yeah, Ben-Gurion. Right? He's a Jew from Europe. Right? So he says, yeah. By the Chatzar Mamish? In the Chatzar by the Rebbe Mamish? He says, yeah. No? What did he say? So he said, so he said, he said it's very important there should be a chinuch atzmi, they're very important, there should be a separate educational system for what, you know, so what's called today Haredi schools. I don't know if that word was there then, but now it's out there. Alto-Orthodox schools. So Shazar and Ben-Gurion, they start talking, he says, by the Rebbe, and that's the Rebbe said, so he looks at him again, Ben-Gurion, the Rebbe said that? He said, yeah. So Ben-Gurion turns to Shazar and says, that's what it should be. And that was it. That's why there's Kino Chatzmei in Eretz Yisrael today. Because Parish went to the Frida Garabi and these two old Jews from Europe who are running this new little country that's this complete miracle. I mean, that shouldn't be there. It's absolutely absurd that the place is there. Right, okay. So they're, they're like running this whole show, you know, and, and you know, doing their best, but it's not like they have a lot of experience in doing this, running countries. They've never done this before, right? And, and so they say, okay, and uh, there is. So all sorts of interesting, good things happen, but a, a, a Zionist per se, it's not a Zionist, right? Ben-Gurion had the foresight to realize he had to make a deal with the Fruma. 
and he was smart, and he did. He said, okay, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll work things out. But it's not like he didn't want to do away with it, ultimately. Pinchas Sapir was a minister in the government. He's the minister of uh, finance. Also an interesting guy. The minister, all these guys were very interesting guys. Pinchas Sapir was once walking along with someone, I don't remember who, I just heard this story recently. Someone told it because these were all members of the Labour Party. Now, the Labour Party basically doesn't exist anymore. That's, you know, four or five seats. They ran the country for the first 30 years until 1977. There was a revolution. Begin won the election. Begin had been in, in opposition for 30 years. He had been the opposition leader. No one else had ever won an election except the Labour Party. So the Labour Party now has about four or five seats. They basically don't exist. So when that happened in the last few elections, so someone told a story about Pinchas Sapir walking along, and he was walking in, in, the, in the Frum neighborhood in Yerushalayim, and he pointed out to someone and said, see these people? Another 30 years, they won't exist. I mean, they'll all be gone. All the religious people will be gone, and we'll, you know, the New Age Judaism will take over. So now there's no Labour Party. But there's, if you notice, there's still a few religious people walking around Yerushalayim and other places. It's just so ironic. Because that's really what they believed. Okay, so the Mijavdim were worse, much worse. Right? Much, no comparison, but that's who they fought. And what did, how did they fight them? You're not taking me away from Yiddishkeit. This essential connection. There's no other way. It, it, it can't be that the Yid is separated from the Eibishter. And when that level of the Neshama is revealed in the conscious person, it has to be revealed in consciousness, otherwise I'm not going to act this way. But then a person connects to the Abishra in a way that's completely superconscious, even though it's expressing itself in their conscious behavior. And since in that level of our connection to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, Ein Shayach, it's not relevant. Shum Pagam Any level of a blemish or defilement, Chosvisholom, Tuma. Like that pach echad shel shemen, like the one little flask of oil, that was sealed with the seal of the kohen gadol. Right? So now the rabbi says what we talked about last week that the external forces aren't able to come there. Meaning there was that one place in reality. What's how does it express itself in 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 Gashmias? It was a pach shemen. It was a flask of shemen, you know, this big. A flask of shemen with a seal of the Kayan Gadol. How did the Greeks miss it? I don't know whether it was there. It doesn't matter whether it was there. The Messiris Nefesh of the Hashmonaim brought about a, a, a miracle that we found that flask. Why? Because they touched the place that that flask of shemen represents. A place where defilement can't get to. Completely beyond anything the Greek can defile. Because the Greek can't touch the essential connection of the Yid to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Can the Greek affect the intellect of the Jew? Absolutely. Can he even affect the super intellectual aspect of the Jew? Absolutely. No question. Can he get to the essence of the Jew? Not a chance. So when that was revealed, 
That's the way to defeat the Greek. When that was revealed, so a miracle happened. When the Achashmonim were able to find that place in themselves to fight the Greeks, so the Greeks were metame kol Ashmanim shabaychol. They were metame tremendous levels of, of kedusha. But there's a level they can't touch. And that's the essential connection of the Yud to the Ebrishtim. And when the Chashmonim were Meser Nefesh to fight the Greeks, so that level was revealed. How was it revealed? The Pach Shem. Why couldn't the Greek find the Pach Shem? And they found they, they were all there. They, went, they broke them all. They opened them all. Right. That one they didn't see. Why? Was it there? I don't know. It was there in Gashmias. It was there in Gashmias when we went to find it because it was physical oil that we poured into bowls. Okay. Was it there when the Greeks were busy smashing everything up in the Hechel? I don't know. It represents a level of reality that the Greek can't see. He doesn't believe in the existence of that level of reality. Completely and totally beyond intellect. Intellect is willing to allow for a level beyond intellect that's reasonable to, to give credence to. Human intellect will understand the existence of, 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 of a psyche. No problem. Which is subconscious or superconscious you. No problem. Human intellect talks about it all the time. Very sophisticated. Psychology. Adarabha, they created a language that makes teaching Hasidus now so easy because there's this whole language, subconscious, superconscious. How do you teach Hasidus without those words before Freud came up, you know, Freud and Jung, you know, developed that language? How did you teach about Chayesh of I don't know. I mean, you had to make up words, right? Now it's so easy, subconscious, superconscious. If there's a person walking around in the world that doesn't know what that is, I mean, what rock has he been living under for the last 20 years? Everybody knows, heard of subconscious reality, superconscious reality. Advertising is all about touching your subconscious reality, right? You see something and it, it arouses in you this desire to go buy a certain type of paper towel. Next time you're in the store, you have this overwhelming desire to buy... Bounty. I don't know. Why, why do I want to buy bounty? I don't know. Because someone who studied psychology and then went into advertising, anybody in advertising studied psychology. I can even be an advertiser if you didn't study psychology and know how people work. Right? So they know how to get you to think that when you're walking in the store, this is the best one. Not just what they told you on television or on the radio, but also the packaging. That packaging will just, wow, oh, that one looks good. It doesn't look good. I don't know. It's just packaged right. I want that one. Right? See some black past plastic bag and it says paper towels. I don't think I'll buy that one. I don't want that one. It doesn't look so good. It's the same stuff. Now everybody knows, right? So now they'll buy the Kirkland stuff that's not packaged so well because it's really the same as that. Okay, fine. But Kirkland worked hard at getting you to do that. Who was it? Costco. They, Costco. Right? They worked very hard at getting you to do that. They managed. Everybody will buy Kirkland now. It took them a while to get into your psyche that that's okay. So everybody understands that. Even the Greek. What doesn't he understand? Essentially, yeah. Something beyond that. He can't touch that. He doesn't know how to get there. So if we touch that, we beat the Greek. If we play on his playground... It's a close game. Sometimes we might win, but we can lose. It's late. Let's stop. It's late. We'll pick up tomorrow.